Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored, The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and that's sort of a new sound. We've been in chapter 6 for a while, but now we're moving into chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we're going to start part 1. What's going to take a while to work through this. You don't go through chapter 7 quickly. If you've read ahead of me, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And we're going to talk about this morning, should I marry or remain single? (laughs) And that's part one. If you're married, uh, relax. (laughs) But should I marry or remain single? In chapter 6, the Apostle Paul has shared a wonderful truth in the background of some horrid sin. Isn't it amazing that sometimes out of the darkest places, God reveals the most glorious truth? Against the backdrop of immorality in Corinth even to the point of believers soliciting the prostitutes of Corinth, the Apostle Paul reveals a glorious truth, and that is our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. In verse 19 and verse 20, he says in chapter 6, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. He even said in verse 15 of chapter 6 that our bodies are members of Christ. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now, have you thought ahead? Someone shared this with me last week, and the more I thought about it, the the more the truth is is alive in, in this statement. How the Apostle Paul discovered that the body is a member of Christ. How did he discover it? You know, you know he, he found this out coming in to the faith. He was on the Damascus Road going to arrest Christians when Christ arrested him. <laughs> and the first thing that Christ said to him on the Damascus Road before he blinded him for three days, he said to him in, in verse 4 of Acts chapter 9, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, what's the next word? Me. That's an odd question, isn't it? Why did he not say, Paul or Saul, why are you not, why are you persecuting my people? He didn't say that. He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because you see, when you become a believer, you can become a part of the body of Christ. You never touch a Christian that you don't touch him. You never speak against a Christian that you do not speak against him. Because we are a part of his body and he is a part of us. And so, one, a wonderful truth 
in some pretty difficult circumstances that is revealed in chapter 6. Well, in chapter 7, Paul's going to shift gear, but in shifting gear, he's, he's not going to throw away the fact of what he's just said. You know, sometimes you jump to another subject, but you don't, don't forget that the truth of Christ living in us and our bodies being the temple of God continues to carry right on through. What we, even though he shifts subjects, he stays with that truth. Because if we're a part of Christ, then as Jennifer sang a while ago, we walk by faith. And whatever he says in his word is what we know is truth. And that's what we hold to and that's what we obey. So we continue to keep that thought in mind. We made the statement earlier, as we it's our 50th message so far in 1 Corinthians. But we made a statement earlier, way back yonder, that there was a letter that these people had written to Paul at some point. And this is what we're going to see come up now in verse 1 of chapter 7. We don't have the letter. Wish we did. He says in verse 1, Now concerning the things which you wrote. Now, <laughs> chapter 7 through chapter 11 concerns the things that they wrote. He starts off with the subject of, of uh, divorce and immorality and all these kind of things. We, several things he's going to get into here. Marriage, uh, celibacy, all these type of things. Starts off there but has a, a tremendous list of things they must have asked him. But the problem is we don't have the letter, so we don't have the question. That's an interesting thing. What we have are the answers, <laughs> but we don't have the question. That's a tough way to study. When you're studying the answer to something that you don't have the question for, it takes a little bit more time, and you've got to camp out there for quite a while. And chapter 7 begins with the subject of marriage and celibacy. And some people may ask, what do you mean by celibacy, Wayne? I mean by being single and remaining single. That's what celibacy is all about. Some people think that's a spiritual thing to do. Well, is it or is it not? And what is it that God has as his norm? Is it marriage or is it celibacy? These things were in the mind of the people and they were asking questions concerning that. Now, to get into chapter 7 and not just the subject of marriage and celibacy, but the whole chapter, if you've read ahead of me, you know what we're about to approach, then you have to back off a little bit and understand some of the culture of Corinth, what was going on at that time. It's so helpful to realize much of the Corinthian believers' morality reflected the pagan immoral culture that was around them. Their society tolerated fornication, adultery, homosexuality, polygamy, and some even said it was okay to have a concubine. You know, this was something that was going on right in their time when Paul was writing this letter. Kind of sounds like America, doesn't it? <laughs> Not quite as bad. Juvenal, one of the Roman poets that wrote between 40 or 60 rather and 140 AD, wrote of women who rejected their own sex at that time. <laughs> they wore helmets, <laughs> I love this, and battle armaments, and they would take swords and they loved to go out into battle and defeat men. <laughs> I've been telling you for a long time that <laughs> there was a, such a thing as a women's military union. Well, here it is, right here. And it was going on during this time. They rejected their own sex. They wanted to be more powerful than men. And this was going on right at this time when Paul wrote this letter. There were four types of marriages during that time. One was that of slaves. Uh, only it was a subhuman type of thing. It was terrible what they did with slavery. Just like what we know of slavery in our world, in our days. Uh, that if a slave wanted to be married, whether a woman or a man, the owner of that slave would arrange that marriage, but it was sort of what they call a tent companionship. They'd put them in a tent, and if the, if the owner wanted to change their partners or, or dissolve the marriage, he could do that at any time he wanted to do it. It was a terrible way to treat people. 
The second form of marriage was a common law marriage that recognized a couple to be husband and wife after they had lived together for one year. All you had to do was live with somebody for a year and then they recognized you, common law, as the fact that you were married. The third kind of marriage was a special kind of arranged marriage in which a father would sell his daughter to a prospective husband. Now, I know some dads have considered that, but they would sell the daughter to a prospective husband. The fourth was more elevated and was geared more toward the nobility, and this was the form that comes right into our culture today. The Roman Catholic Church adopted it and modified it a little bit. Protestantism picked it up, carried it right through the Reformation, right into the day in which we live. That ceremony involved participation by both families in the arrangements for the wedding. A matron or a bridesmaid, we would know it, accompanied the bride. A man or a best man accompanied the groom. There was the exchanging of vows. There was the wearing of a veil by the bride. The giving of a ring placed on the third finger on the left hand. A bridal bouquet and a wedding cake. And all of these things that we know of today came right out of this fourth kind of marriage that they tolerated at that time. Now, the early church, the problem was, and when Paul was, was writing this and when they wrote him asking all these questions, the early church had people that had been saved that came out of all four kinds of these marriages. Can you imagine? Divorce was a common thing. The church was filled with members who had had many marriages and many uh, divorces, uh, but it wasn't enough. If that wasn't enough, then some of the members, remember who said they were of Paul, chapter 1, verse 12, chapter 3, verse 4, we're of Paul. Well, Paul was a celibate. In other words, he was single, remained single, and because of the work that God had given him and the gift that God had given him to remain that way, and so the people that were of Paul said, that's the way you ought to go. Celibacy is the only way. You're not spiritual unless you're of Paul, unless you're celibate. And they even, they, they totally denounced any kind of marriage. Still others during that time taught that any kind of sex was unspiritual and should be forsaken altogether in the, even in the marriage bond. But it was a tough situation for the mature, much less for the immature, to wade through all this stuff and decide what does God want us to be like. On top of that, Corinth was a Gentile city with a large Jewish population. In Acts 18, verse 4, Paul addressed that. He says, and he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So you had this large Jewish population. Now with religious Jews coming to Christ, Crispus, the synagogue leader, being one of the first ones, and pagan Gentiles coming to Christ, you can tell immediately how many problems begin to come up in the subject of marriage. And one of the biggest problems was whether you had unbelieving Jewish people or whether you had unbelieving pagan Gentiles, when one of those unbelievers became a believer, now what? What do you do when you've got a believer now married to either a religious person who rejects Christ or a pagan person who is licentious and, and denote, denounces Christ in any way? What do you do? What does that person do? Let's, let's look at it from the Gentile perspective. They participated in the licentious lifestyle around them. <laughs> and here's perhaps a woman that gets saved. And all of a sudden, overnight, immorality goes out of her life. She realizes her body is the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. And suddenly, she's brand new. She's a brand new creature. She's been called out of that lifestyle and into a different life and different way of living. What does she do? Does she refuse any kind of sexual relations with the unbelieving spouse since her body is now dwelling of the dwelling of Christ? 
Does she remain married and have her body used by an adulterer husband? Or does she get a divorce and remarry? This was some of the questions they were asking. These were many of them. As a matter of fact, they're still asking many of these questions today. And so in verse 1 of chapter 7, Paul says, Now concerning the things which you wrote, and, and then he says, It is good for a man not to touch a woman. <laughs> now this is, I tell you what, if you realize the complexity of the issue here, you begin to realize how difficult this chapter is. Having only the answers, knowing the culture, knowing the background, but not having the questions, it's a very, very difficult chapter in which to interpret. Now, this is not the first time the question seemed to be coming up, should I marry or should I stay single? I mean, he's going to go on and he's going to talk about his own celibacy and he's going to talk about a man never touching a woman and living single, etc. And, and, and the question comes up, well, should I marry or or should I stay celibate? That is a, that's a valid question that somebody needs to ask, but it's not the first time it's ever been asked. Look over in Matthew chapter 19. I want to show you something. You're talking about the way people looked at marriage and the way they looked at divorce. It is amazing how the similarities of what's going on in the 20th century today. And this is back, this is, I want to show you something his, this, one of his disciples said to him. And this is it's amazing to me. In Matthew chapter 19 and verse 8, the Pharisees were trying to trick him, and they said Moses commanded us to get a divorce. No, 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 no. Moses didn't command anybody. He permitted. But Jesus answered them in verse 8 of Matthew 19. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. This has never been God's intention. And then in verse 9, look what he says. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus singled it out. There's one way that you, you have as an out here, which is immorality. Two great men, and you would know both of them if I told you, but I'm not going to do that, were talking together. They were friends. They were at one of them's ministry area in, in a beautiful campus. And they were walking across the campus, and one of them looked at the other great man of God, true story, and he said to him, do you believe there is an exception clause when it comes to marriage and, and, and divorce, or divorce and remarriage, really? And this great man of God said, yes, I do. He said, why? He said, because Matthew 9, or 19, verse 9, which we just read, Jesus said, except for immorality. That seems to me to be an exception clause. Well, the man he was talking to said to him, well, we used to have some geese. See those geese over there? He said, yeah. He said, when we got those geese, we had to take the, had to cut, clip their feathers so they couldn't fly away because they have a tendency to want to fly out of that, uh, that pen that we have them in. But one night, he says, uh, an animal got in on one end and dug a big old hole, and every one of those geese tried to get out of that hole. In other words, if you preach to people that there is an exception, that Jesus even mentioned an exception, people are going to use that as a loophole to get out from under a situation they don't want to stay in. That's a pretty good question, pretty good logic. This great man of God looked back at him and he said, the most classic answer I have ever heard, and I heard it with my own ears when he said it. He said back to him, he said, if you didn't have any geese, then what would Matthew 19, 9 say? And I love his answer. What he was saying is, you don't cover bases God didn't tell you to cover. You just stand on what God said. But right here in verse 9, he said there's one way, only one way, and that's immorality. 
And then look what his disciples said to him. This is his disciples now. These are his followers. And look what they say in verse 10. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. <laughs> now, we don't think about how depraved the society was in which Jesus said the word that he said. And they said, are you kidding me? You mean I can't divorce her if she burns a toast? You mean I can't divorce her if she looks different when she gets older than she did when I first married her? You mean I can't just ditch her and get somebody younger and prettier? You mean I can't do that? Good grief. If, if immorality is the only exception, then it's better not to be married. That was the logic of his disciples in the day in which Jesus lived. Not much different than it is today, but that was the logic of that day. Well, so they were still asking the same question. They asked it back under Jesus' day. Is it, is it, hey, let's just stay single. And they're saying the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. Well, let's ease into this chapter. I mean, we're, we're walking into some deep waters. We're going to get into shallows this morning, and that's as far as we're going to go. We'll just see how, we'll inch, inch by inch, life's a cinch. Yard by yard, life's way too hard. So we're just going to inch into it piece, a little bit at a time. Now, if you're not studying ahead of me, and you're not staying with me, it's probably going to confuse you before we finish this little series of the first seven verses. I really encourage you, stay with me, stay in the text, so you'll know what we're talking about, where we've come from, where we're headed. All right? Verse 1, now concerning the things about which you wrote, and we don't know what they wrote, here's his answer. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Evidently, there was a question they asked him, and his answer to that question, which we don't have, is it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now that brings up all kinds of ideas that people have. But the best way, one of the best ways when you don't know the question, you only know the answer, to find out what a man is trying to say is to look at what you know for sure he's not saying. That's one of the best ways in the world is to look at it from the reverse end. To find out what a person is saying, let's look for and make sure we nail down what he's not saying. And then the answer becomes very evident and very clear. And there are three things he's not saying in what he said when it says is good for a man not to touch a woman. First of all, he in no way is putting marriage down. There's no way that Paul could have been demeaning marriage and teaching that celibacy or asceticism was the God-ordained way of life. Now, asceticism, the celibacy is remaining single. But asceticism takes it even a step further. Asceticism is denying your flesh any pleasure, including marriage. And there were people, the ascetics of that day, that denied themselves any of this kind of luxury, any of this kind of pleasure. They just denied it. So asceticism was a form of even religion of that day. And celibacy was, the, was, was remaining single and not getting married. So there was no way he was propagating either of those two views. Now, how do you know that? Well, first of all, all we have to do is go to Genesis, and you're going to get your fingers nimble right quick. Go to Genesis to realize that God would not have in any way been going against the very purpose that God had set up for man and woman, which was marriage. Go back to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. No way in the world he was putting marriage down, not by saying it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, and there are other verses in Genesis 2 that I will not read, but in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable 
for him. If you read on down, he says, and God brought the woman to the man. That's one thing I cling to with my son, Stephen. <laughs> I know God's going to bring the woman to that man because <laughs> I know he'll never find her. Verse 24 <laughs> of chapter 2. <laughs> for this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now that's in the very beginning. This is God's idea. Marriage is God's idea from square one. In Genesis chapter one, verse 27, turn back. Genesis chapter one, verse 27. This is God now. This is how God created man and woman and the purpose he had for them. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then in verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. It is extremely clear that God created man and woman and he created marriage as the institution so that man and woman could live, reproduce, the whole family structure is God's idea and God's design. And Paul would in no way in 1 Corinthians go against the very inception of God's purpose. We'll turn over to Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 22 as we journey a little further in the Old Testament. Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 22. We find a lot of wisdom in a verse here in verse 22, Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs 18, 22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. That's a, that's a powerful verse. You know, Paul himself taught that even the leaders of the church should be married. He speaks of it with the elders, but he also speaks of it with the deacons. Look in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. Paul wouldn't be contradicting himself. If he says it's good for a man never to touch a woman or not to touch a woman, he wouldn't be contradicting himself. He's already said it's very important that marriage be there for church leaders. He says it of the elders, but then in verse 12 of 1 Timothy 3, he says, let deacons be husbands of only one wife or a one-woman man and good managers of their children and their own households. Look over in 1 Timothy 5, verse 14, when he speaks of the younger widows, and these are widows, and they're still young, and look what he says of them. 1 Timothy 5, verse 14, he says, therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. Now, it's pretty clear that Paul has taught that marriage is the design that God has. In the Old Testament, God himself presents himself to his people as their husband. Turn back to Isaiah 54, verse 5. <laughs> Isn't this fun? I'm going to keep you awake in this service. Isaiah 54, and verse 5. You need to see these things. I mean, this, this, this language is God's vocabulary. It's his design. Marriage is his whole purpose for man and for woman. In Isaiah 54 and verse 5, he says there, For your husband is your maker, your creator, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. Look over at Isaiah 62 and verse 5. He brings it again into his vocabulary here. In speaking of his relationship to Israel, he says, For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, look at this, 
so your God will rejoice over you. Look in Hosea chapter 2 and verse 19. No fair looking in a table of contents now. Hosea chapter 2. <laughs> I've told this before, but I never will forget the person that came. I've forgotten who it was that spoke. And every one of y'all looked up here at me. He said, turn to Amos. Y'all wanted to see if I knew where Amos was. Speaking out of Amos. Well, I know about where it is. But I was under the gun. I couldn't look in the table of contents. So I just turned and looked at Ezekiel while he preached out of Amos. But y'all thought, boy, isn't that good? He turned right to it. <laughs> I was in the wrong book. Hosea chapter 2, verse 19. <laughs> and some of y'all are doing the same thing right now. I know that. You're not in Hosea. You don't even know where it is. But it says in verse 19 of Hosea chapter 2, And I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. Now that's the very language God used himself of his relationship to Israel as a husband to them. Look over in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 22 and verse 2. We find in the parables of Jesus, that Jesus gave the parable that he incorporates the language of marriage. It's so important. This is on God's mind constantly. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 2. He says in verse 2 there of Matthew 22, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, it's amazing how this comes up in so many of his parables. In the parable of the ten virgins, we have a scene from a wedding when the bridegroom comes unexpectedly and there are many that are unprepared. In Matthew 25 and verse 10, talking about the second coming of Christ. Matthew 25 and verse 10. He says, and while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. So again, Jesus even brings the terminology into his own parables. But then we also find out that the church is called the bride of Christ. Look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. The church is the bride of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. He says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Talking about the church and how we are betrothed to Christ and he's the bridegroom. In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 7, it again talks about the church being the bride. Of, of Christ. Revelation 19 and verse 7. He says in verse 7, Revelation 19, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. Boy, that's a study in itself was not made ready, but made herself ready. In Revelation 21, in verse 2, look over there. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride or adorned for her husband. Then in verse 17 of Revelation chapter 22, look down at that verse. He says, and the spirit and the what say? And the bride say, come, 
And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. So the one thing you know in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, when Paul says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, in no way is he saying anything about the marriage bond. He is not putting down marriage in any way. You say, Wayne, why do you bring that out? Because there are people who surface interpret this and that's some of the crazy garbage they come up with. That God's not even for marriage. That it's more spiritual to stay celibate. It's the same type of attitude that people have when it comes to fasting. If you fast, you're spiritual. Never has fasting made anybody spiritual. Fasting is the environment in which you put prayer so that you can hear clearer than, than you could have any other way. But it does not make you spiritual. Nor does being celibate. And Paul is not teaching in any way that you put down marriage and lift up celibacy. That's not what he's saying at all. But secondly, what is he not saying? There's no way that Paul is teaching that sexual relations are wrong within the marriage bond. No way whatsoever. Again, if one could surface interpret this, it's good for a man not to touch a woman and doesn't understand its context and doesn't understand where Paul is headed, doesn't understand the counsel of the Word of God, he perhaps could come up with that kind of thing. So here's a man and a woman living in two ends of the house and they never are together intimately. There's never physical uh, situations in their life. And they could say, and they even use that verse wrongly, but they could use it. Do you realize if you surface interpret Scripture you can make a cookbook out of it if you're really skilled in what you're doing. If you don't know the context and don't understand what's going on at that particular point. Since we don't know the question that was asked of Paul. Now remember that. We don't know the question. All we know is the answer. <laughs> so we've got, got to assume some things here. We assume that their question involved a man and a woman that were not in the marriage bond. Automatically you have to make that exception. You say, well, Wayne, how do you do that? Well, Nothing else makes any sense. In no way could Paul be saying that. Look down in verse 5 of chapter 7. If I've got to explain this verse to you, let me do it in private in my office over here if you can't see it. I mean, it's clear as a bell. It's clear as a nose on your face. Look what he says in verse 5 to the marriage couples. He says, stop depriving one another. And he means directly in the sexual relationship except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now that's pretty clear what he's talking about there. So there's no way he could put this, let, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, into the context of a man and his wife. That's not what he's talking about. He's not in any way denouncing the, the sexual intimacy of husband and wife. But... When the man or the woman is not in the marriage bond, now the context becomes clear of what his question must have been and why his answer is so clearly understood in that context. It's good for a man not to touch a woman if that woman is not his wife, if that woman is not in the marriage bond that God has given to him. Now, even singles gets involved in this. We have a lot of singles in our church. It's good for a single man not to touch a single woman because there's no marriage bond under which those kinds of things are allowed, you see. So a lot of context now begin to open up, but you've got to make the exclusion of the marriage bond because he in no way is he saying that intimacy in marriage is, is, is wrong. It's not good for a man. Matter of fact, you could say it in reverse. 
It is not good for a man not to touch his wife. <laughs> it's not good because as, as, he'll, as he'll bring out very clearly in the verses to come. You know, Jesus taught on divorce and remarriage in Matthew chapter 5. And many people start the teaching in verse 31, but it doesn't start in verse 31. It starts back in verse 27. I want you to see this. To see where the touch comes in and how many marriages are dissolved and divorce happens as a result of, of a man touching a woman who's not his wife. This is where a lot of divorces come from. This is where adultery comes from. This is why when a woman goes to work and a man works and they're married and they're in different situations and they're in different scenarios and all kinds of things are going on. And when they allow any of this kind of stuff, you're going to see a breakdown in the family at some point if they're not very, very careful. He says in verse 27 of Matthew chapter 5, notice. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, note the eyes here. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. The sin begins with an attitude long before it becomes an act. Verse 29, and if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of the body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And then he says in verse 30, look at the hand. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than your whole body go into hell. Now, what did he do here? He says, it's been said about adultery. He mentioned adultery. Then he starts off with the eyes and says, that's where it starts. But then it moves to the hands. And the hands, of course, move to the touch. And that's where it all gets started, right there. So it's good for a man not to touch a woman who's outside of the marriage bond. This is where this stuff gets started. And this is why it's so important to understand what's going on. Then he links it to divorce in verse 31. And it, is, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And why would he send her away? Because he's found somebody else that he wants to touch, he wants to look at. He found somebody else that's better looking than his wife. Verse 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the cause of unchastity or immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. But I'm not going to get into that. That's not my context. He starts with the eyes. He moves to the hands and he moves to the touch. This is Jesus. Now, this is not Paul. This is Jesus. The command to keep your hands to yourself is not Paul's command. It's actually the command of Jesus. And Paul just picks up on it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and answers, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. But we understand what he means. Not in the context of marriage, oh no. He's talking about when a man and a woman are not married to one another. The word touch is an interesting word, and I think this will help you even better. It's the word haptome, and it means to set fire to, to kindle, to light. That's an interesting word. It's a little bit more than just touching. You know, it's funny. I, I grew up in a hugging family. How many of you grew up in a hugging family that's in here? Just hugged. My mama hugged everything that moved. And it just, her genes got right in me, and I just hugged too. And so when I study this, I'm thinking, whoa, whoa, am I supposed to hug? Well, now, there's a difference in a hug <laughs> and a hug. <laughs> now, if you have to ask the question, what's the difference? Then don't hug. <laughs> Are you with me? If you've got to ask that question, then friend, back off and stay backed off until you can figure out the difference. There is a difference. There are two words for touch. But this particular word that he uses, like I said, means to set fire to, to kindle, to light. In Luke chapter 8, verse 16, he says, now no one after lighting a lamp covers it over with a container. He uses that word. 
Luke eleven thirty three. no one after lighting a lamp, same word. Luke 15, verse eight, or what woman if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin does not light a lamp? That's the same word. So the word touch, he, he could have used a simpler, more generic word for touch, which would be the word thigano. Thigano would be like just a touch, you know, just go, <laughs> just touch. I mean, no, no intention in it. You're not going to light a fire that way. You just, you just touch. That's a, but he didn't. He used this word haptome, which has a much stronger meaning than the word just simply to touch. It means to handle something. It's a touch with an influence that goes along with it. Like when the Lord touched the leper, this is the word that is used in Matthew chapter eight and verse three, and he stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I'm willing to be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was, was cleansed. In other words, when Jesus touched him, he had intent with his touch and influence with his touch. There was purpose involved in that touch. In, in Matthew chapter eight, verse 15 of Peter's mother-in-law, and he touched her hand and the fever left her and she arose and waited on him. Or in Matthew 9 in verse 20, when the woman with the issue of blood came and touched the hem of his garment and behold, a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his coat. She wasn't just trying to touch it. She had something with a, with a purpose behind that touch. She wanted the healing power of God to help her and it did. For she was saying to herself, if only if I touch his garment, I shall get well. This word for touch means to touch with the thought of influencing someone. You know, I have been in places to where, I, like I said, I run into other huggers <laughs> and huggers just love huggers. But out of the mix, when you're just hugging everybody, just loving everybody, there's nothing wrong with it. There's no evil intent. There's nothing there. However, there'll be one hug that you'll worry about the rest of the evening. And you're thinking to yourself, hmm, there's something not right here. It's time to back off. That person maybe had an intent with that hug. That's the word touch. Now, it helps you a lot. You know, if you didn't know the Greek words in all of this, you could just go off with this radical thing. Don't even shake hands. No, I can't touch you. That's not what he's saying. But there's a difference when there's intent involved, when there's a purpose involved. And I guarantee you one thing. All of us know when that happens. Brother Wayne, I'm so spiritual, I don't know. Oh, quit lying through your teeth, you do too. I'm, I'm telling you, some people walk around as if, oh, I'm above such things. Baloney. All of us have our flesh to deal with, folks, and it doesn't get better, it doesn't get better. It's just good to be wise and know the difference in a hug and a hug and a touch and a touch. It's just good to know the difference. And you don't have to explain it. <laughs> I can see what's going to happen now. People walk up and say, okay, I don't need a minute. <laughs> no, 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 no. If you did, they already know. So just leave it alone. Just don't do it. <laughs> In 1 Corinthians 7, 1, the touch here is a touch that has come as a result of the roving of the eye that Jesus talked about. And so the touch and the, and the eye are related. And so there is a purpose here that you need to understand. Therefore, Paul answers what must have been asked concerning relationships outside the marriage bond. We don't know the question, but we do know the answer. And we can figure out what the question was just by looking at what he's not saying. He's not putting down sexual intimacy in marriage. That's ridiculous. He's not putting down marriage. 
But he's saying something to people that are single or people who are in the marriage bond. It's be careful because there is that touch that comes from the roving of the eye. And his answer is a good one. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. But I want to say another word. I don't know why it's on my heart. Singles, beware. Singles, beware. This is where it starts right here. This is where it starts. Do you realize that we, many times in churches, without, without intention, actually have been guilty in the past, not just us, I'm talking about church in general, of doing things to where we have put people into situations that have on the other end of it ended up in, in mixed, messed up marriages and relationships, etc. Um, I hesitate to say this, but I'm just going to go ahead and do it because I'm in trouble most of the time anyway. You know, we did the praise pageant for years. It was wonderful, wasn't it? Do you ever realize how much time went into practice for people? Do you ever realize how many times in the drama, etc., when husband of this person was put into a situation with wife of that person? Have you ever stopped to evaluate? Did any homes break up as a result of any of this? And if you know anything that I'm talking about, and I won't say this the second service, you know it did happen. And you're wondering why we don't do the praise pageant right now. Well, one of the reasons is we've got a brand new minister of praise who's doing a wonderful job, and we're letting God raise it up under 10. And we want it to be something that God raises up out of the choir and out of Tim's heart, and we love him. But at the same time, we're very cautious now. We've learned something. Because we don't know what's going on out here. We just think everybody just loves Jesus and just walking with him all the time. Used to think that. <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't think that anymore. There's the I, there's the touch. And the next step is what Jesus talked about, is the act. And that's where marriages are broken up. And we've got to be so very careful as a church. I was out in Amarillo, Texas at the Paramount Christian Church there doing a meeting. Big old church, about 5,000. The guy told me, he said, you know what? He said, we've had to back off doing a lot of big presentations. And I said, is that right? He said, yeah. I said, why? And he said verbatim what I just said. I said, I cannot believe this. And I shared with him some of the situations we have dealt with. Folks, I'm just trying to be honest with you. Be careful. Be real careful. The eye may be communicating with the hand. <sighs> okay, that's enough. Let's get it. Okay. He's not putting down marriage. <laughs> and he's not condemning sexual relationship or intimacy in marriage. But he is warning big time on a question that evidently concerned people outside of the marriage bond. How do they relate to one another? He said, it's good for a man not to touch a woman in the sense of touching with an intent behind the touch. However innocent it may appear, is there an intent behind the touch? But then thirdly, he's not condemning celibacy. Now I want to make sure we say that because with everything else we've said, it kind of looks like he's condemning celibacy, but he's not. For a person to remain single is not a bad thing. But however, it's never elevated over being married. Celibacy, the desire to remain single was a very rare thing in Paul's day. You didn't find it among Gentiles. <laughs> I mean, don't worry about the touching the woman. I mean, that was the Gentile morality or immorality of the day. But among believers, you, you rarely found any type of celibate individual. Uh, there were some. It is said that... Uh, 
that was not a part of the Nazarite vow, although many believe that John the Baptist came under the Nazarite vow like Samson and, and he, he was to live celibate. They even believe he was part of the Essenes. The Essenes were an interesting community and worthy of some study sometime if you have time to do that. Uh, they're the ones who preserved a lot of the scrolls down in the Qumran district. They were a communal group of people, very religious. Matter of fact, had a powerful influence during the day. And much of that was very positive, but some of it was negative. Because a lot of people believe that John Baptist came out of the Essene community. And the Essenes pro propagated celibacy. Matter of fact, you had to be celibate for three years before you could even join them to make sure that you'd be committed to that lifestyle from that point on. And they lived in communes and, and they participated together in meals, et cetera, and finances. They all pooled it all together. But of course, out of the Essene community came the germ that infested and infected the thinking of the, the, the world at that time of Gnostic dualism and I can't get into all of that, but Gnostic dualism, that's what John dealt with in his epistles. That's what Paul has dealt with in Colossians and all. That's, that's it. All matter is evil. They were big time. They were big on light versus darkness, evil versus good. And out of that good intention came a terrible thinking that Jesus could not have inherited a human body because all matter is evil. And it came right out of probably the Essene community. But one of the things they did do that was not good to the Christian community besides that was that they propagated a lifestyle of celibacy as if it was a spiritual lifestyle. And perhaps they even used people like John the Baptist because we don't know, but perhaps they even used people like him as examples or Paul as an example. So you have to be very careful when, when you think of being celibate or single, you have to understand only if God has gifted you to be celibate is it ever permissible, not permissible, but is it ever a lifestyle that you can pursue? Only if God has gifted you to be celibate. You know, when you go on down and you read what Paul says in verse uh, 7 of chapter 7, it may make it look like he's, he's encouraging people to be celibate. He says in verse 7, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. Now, what did Paul do? He was a missionary, he, he was not, but he was not tied down to anything. And he understood how marriage is, a, there is a tie to that. And there, there's a certain uh, bondage in a sense, but in a good sense. But, but yet he said he had all the freedom in the world to do what he did. He said, I wish that all men were like me. But then he goes on to say, however, each man has his own gift from God. One in this manner and another in that and Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 did the same thing. He talked about the fact, he related in chapter 19, a celibate lifestyle, he uses the phrase eunuch, but he related his commendation to only to those to whom it was given and to those who were able to receive it. So should I marry or stay single? And we're working our way through it. We're not anywhere close to answering that fully. But this morning, based on what we've seen, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Paul is not saying it's good that you remain single. That's not what he's saying. However, he is saying that if God has gifted you to remain single, that's fine. Whatever God has given you, that must be somehow how his purpose for your life. But never is celibacy, the single life, ever lifted or exalted above marriage because that was God's plan from the very beginning. So I guess to break it on down, and I've got to get out of here, my time's gone, is to say if you're single and you have a desire to be married, don't worry, you have not got the gift of being celibate. <laughs> I tell my son that. He, he was talking to me one day. He said, Daddy, you reckon God just wants me to stay single? I said, judging from what you have said, 
there would be not one shred of evidence to back up that conviction. <laughs> so what I tell him is, in the meantime, trust God for the mate that he has for you and keep your hands to yourself. <laughs> That'd be what I get out of verse one. <laughs> should I marry or should I stay single? You know, it's funny. As we wade through this, I'm wondering how it's all going to open up and develop, but I'm already beginning to see the gems that just float to the surface as you're going through it. Isn't that fun? If some people say, well, Brother Wayne, I came this morning and wanted you to make me feel good. I'm not here to make you feel good, but as we walk through the scriptures, if you'll listen, God's truth will set you free. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. Now we understand. To touch with an influence, the eye and the hand and the touch all work together. The act is not far to follow. Look out, folks. Look out. Make sure the touch is the innocent touch. The hug and the hook. <laughs> There's a difference. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.